Tune into Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. This is Disrupt Radio, live on DAB and streaming at disrupt.radio. Conscious Capital, net profit to net zero. Hi, I'm Tane Hunter, and you're listening to Conscious Capital, where we explore the cutting edge of science, technology, and human progress to help individuals and organizations understand what's coming next. On this show, you'll hear from scientists, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are all on a mission to foster intelligent, optimistic thinking about our future. You'll learn that there are better ways of doing stuff in the 21st century and how you can be a part of creating and investing in a fair and sustainable future for all. There are more solutions than you ever thought possible and more than one better ending to this global story that we all find ourselves in together right now. Hi, welcome to Conscious Capital. I'm Tane Hunter. My background is in cancer research, data science, and machine learning, what everyone's calling AI these days. I'm also the co-founder of Future Crunch, which does sound like a breakfast cereal for robots, but it's actually a research think tank that seeks out stories of human progress and ingenuity and works with current and emerging leaders to ensure they're creating sustainable businesses that work for people and the planet. We're focused on solutions rather than problems. We research the science, technology, and the tools humanity has created to help solve some of the world's biggest challenges. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. Now I'm pretty excited because today we're going to dive into clean energy, how we can foster cultural currency around climate change solutions, and how to get the money, the funding to drive change, and how we can make it in a fair and equitable way for everybody. Leave no one behind. To help us do that, later in the show, we'll be talking to the co-founders of Groundswell, an organization and community of passionate people who fund and power strategic climate change action. The founders could see there was no shortage of brilliant climate change action out there, but they were ready to scale up and deliver important change and create the funding to make it happen. So they created Groundswell to connect the dots. So you're in for a treat today. Because Groundswell has just raised over $2 million in funding and we'll share how they did it and where they plan to use it. Before we get to that, right now I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by a lovely member of the Future Crunch team and your co-host for today, Dr. Shasta Henry. Hello, Shasta. Hello, Tane. It is great to be back again. Lovely to have you. Can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Sure thing. Uh, I am an ecologist and an entomologist, so I focus on how insects function as building blocks of ecosystems. This means I get to spend a bit of my time identifying and naming new species. And because I deal with some really uncharismatic subjects, things like uh, cockroaches and climate change, I also decided to become an advocate as a science communicator. And you are a damn good one at that. Now, we love working together because we're really excited about what's going on in the world and beyond it. Because right now, there are 10 people living in space and a nuclear-powered robot is searching for life on Mars. Halfway between the Earth and the Sun, the James Webb Space Telescope has unfurled its 18 gold-plated beryllium hexagons to gaze into the furthest reaches of our cosmos, expanding our knowledge of the birth of our universe. 
Back here on the planet we call home, Japanese cherry blossom seeds taken into space for eight months have since returned to the earth and have grown into trees which flowered six years earlier than normal. They also have flowers with five petals, whereas their parent tree had about 30. And we don't know why. I might act a bit strange too if I was baked in cosmic rays. (laughs) Now, a huge number of atoms, 44 million to be exact, have been simulated at once, revealing the inner workings of many molecules in detail. Thanks to AI and a supercomputer, we are unlocking new insights into our basic biological building blocks. A mural has just been painted at a primary school in Belgrade using air purifying paint. So it not only depicts the clean energy transition for Serbian students, it's also interactive thanks to an augmented reality app. But the mural itself is capable of absorbing the same amount of smog as 73 trees. And this is just the latest one in a line of photosynthetic murals. Love carbon sequestering art. From the world of sports now, the iconic athletic company Wilson has teamed up with high-tech company EOS to create a 3D-printed mesh basketball. It weighs and feels exactly the same as usual, but it isn't affected by air pressure and can be printed complete and perfectly every time, cutting down on waste and having to pump the thing up all the time. Also, if it's if it's mesh, it can't get waterlogged. Tane, great news. No more soggy balls. I think I need one. And an astonishing mathematical breakthrough comes after 50 years of theorising and it comes in the form of a hat. This new polygon can do something that no other known shape can, which is infinitely tessellate with itself and never create a repeating pattern. This aperiodic tiling, these are important in the development of quasi-crystals, which apparently are used in everything from Kleenex to real-life Terminator-style robots. Now, I didn't even know that quasi-crystals existed, and now you're telling me that they're in my house? Yeah, crystalline structures are found all over the place. They're really solids that feature highly ordered arrangements of particles like atoms, ions, and molecules. They can be found in table salt, sodium chloride, the diamonds on your fingers, and even in ice cream. For example, it has fat crystals, ice crystals, and lactose crystals. Oh, okay. Well, they can stay in the house then. They sound okay. That's actually, it's pretty cool. I agree. Now... I certainly wish that these were the daily headlines. The modern media machine seems to just breed apathy, though, and hopelessness and, God, even hate. If it bleeds, it leads, and your attention is incredibly valuable to them. But it isn't helping bring about sustainable and positive change. A recent study has revealed that most of the research selected by the mainstream media was overly focused on large-scale climate projections that will occur in the future. And they had a very narrow range of threats, such as polar bears, drought, and melting glaciers. The research shows that this type of narrative does not activate the mechanisms that we know of from research and psychology that might engage pro-environmental behaviors. On the contrary, the media's selective choice of certain elements around climate change research has largely backfired, provoking denial and avoidance. So basically, their conclusion is that bad news doesn't motivate climate action. And keep in mind, listeners, pessimism is easy. You're never surprised or disappointed when things go wrong. By contrast, if we show how a better future can be built, we redraw the boundaries of what's possible, showing that there are better solutions out there and hopefully inspiring people to go be part of the change they wish to see in this world.
be the change you want to see in the world. That's effectively the whole premise of Future Crunch, right, Tane? To motivate people, get people feeling frisky. That's right. To restore balance to our information diets with a fire hose of positive news. And we keep it factually accurate, of course, and that's why we call it intelligent optimism. We believe that you deserve to feel as good as the evidence supports, which is why our commentary is full of our favorite accounts of remarkable human endeavors. Absolutely. The world is run by people who show up. So how are you going to show up? We hope to see you out there. Basically, if everything does go to shit, We're at the end of the world. It's a party. It's a gathering. Who do you want to spend your final hours with? Are you going to be out on the dance floor with people who showed up and gave it their all, having conversations like, awesome try, I loved what you did there, bummer it didn't go to plan, or are you going to be sitting on the sidelines with the cynics who did nothing, they sat back, they're going to be saying like, I told you so, see, it couldn't be done. We want to see you on the dance floor. All right, so let's do this, Shasta. Let's get some people on that dance floor. Let's start sharing some good news. Okay, so in 2013, the 11 countries of the World Health Organization's Southeast Asia region, they adopted a goal to control rubella by 2020, and they made incredible progress. Routine coverage of the rubella vaccine increased from 12% in 2013 up to 86% in 2021, and now 515 million people have been vaccinated. Rubella incidents decreased by 80%. That's down from 5.5 to 1.1 cases per million. The Maldives and Sri Lanka achieved elimination. No more rubella. And Bhutan, North Korea and Timor-Leste have all stopped endemic transitions. That means uh, they've still got cases, but they haven't been contracted or spread inside those countries. And that's been sustained for the last 36 months. That's sick. Uh, Maybe you mean not sick? (laughs) That's not sick. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. This is important because rubella can be a nasty one to get. It's a viral illness that causes a skin rash and joint pain. While most people get infected, the the symptoms are mild. It can have catastrophic consequences for unborn babies. If a pregnant woman contracts rubella, her baby is at risk of far more severe complications. So... I think we can all agree this is a good one to get rid of. Mm -hmm. In more public health news, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan have reached their targets on hepatitis B control. Good on you, Stans. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) And they are joining five other countries in Europe that have done the same in the last two years, bringing the continent a step closer to achieving the ultimate goal of eliminating viral hepatitis as a public health threat by 2030. All right, what else is getting you hopeful, Shasta? Okay, so Japan has recently raised the age of consent from 13. This was the lowest amongst developed nations, up to 16. Uh, They have also introduced far stricter laws against sex crimes, things like expanding scenarios under which rape prosecutions can be made, including for victims who were frightened uh, under the influence of alcohol or drugs, and, and, and including cases of perpetrators taking advantage of social status. That sounds really crucial in a really socially stratified country like Japan. For sure. Uh, And similarly, Kenya has made some incredible strides in reducing their teen pregnancy rates. 
fallen by more than half over the last four years. You see, in 2018, healthcare facilities recorded a total of almost half a million pregnant teenagers in Kenya. By 2022, that number had fallen by 50%. This is a big deal. Until recently, Kenya had the third highest rate of teen pregnancy in the whole world. Ooh, I've got a good story that involves Kenya too. Okay, cool. A new report by the Rights and Resources Initiative has found that land legally owned by Indigenous communities increased by nearly 103 billion hectares. That's an area the size of Egypt between 2015 and 2020. The report analyzed 73 countries and highlighted Kenya and Liberia (laughs) as making the most significant gains. Another great example is indigenous communities have taken ownership of the Tama Wildlife Reserve in southwestern Ethiopia, making it the largest community conservation area in the country. Spanning 197,000 hectares, the reserve is a vital corridor between two national parks and home to diverse wildlife, including Somali giraffes, African elephants, and the black-winged lovebird. Ooh, love a good black-winged lovebird. Will you be my black-winged loved bird, Tane? Uh, Not on the radio. (laughs) All right, Shasta, hit me with another goodie. I love this. Okay, so there's a group of women, or should I say queens, in Mexico City. They have saved around 510 beehives from extermination, which is what happens if they're reported to the local authorities. Each of these hives has about 80,000 bees inside of it. Now, this grassroots project is addressing the dual issue of honeybee decline due to pesticides out where they are needed in croplands and also of honeybees acting as an invasive pest species by building hives in natural tree hollows or in city infrastructure. This disrupts native animals and city dwellers alike. Now, this level of effort is not surprising as bees were actually tended by the Mayans religiously. They believed that honey of the native stingless bees was a gift from the gods. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad to be able to report that there is also a bee king in Mexico who has saved over 100 hives of endangered stingless bees from extermination. He also moves them from the city where people mistake them for stinging bees and migrates them back out into native forest. That's where they belong as a crucial part of the biodiversity and also cultural continuity. You know, I also learned that stingless bee honey has heaps of testable medicinal properties. Well, could you say this is the bee's knees, Shasta? (laughs) I would say that this is the wasp's nipples, Tane. It is a full set of erogenous zones for an entire kingdom of invertebrates. (laughs) Put your proboscis back in your pants, Shasta. (laughs) Tane, if you have a proboscis in your pants, that is not de-escalating the situation. I promise you that's not where that goes. Well, I happen to be okay with a few proboscises in my pants. Um, (laughs) Anyway... To conservation news now, where Mali will receive $150 million from the World Bank to restore and reforest 400,000 hectares of degraded land, which will benefit 2.3 million people. The funds will be distributed amongst 87 councils to restore agricultural lands and also the inland delta of the River Niger, the largest wetland in West Africa. On top of that, UNESCO recently designated 11 new biosphere reserves in nine countries, bringing the worldwide total to 748 sites in 134 countries. Do yourself a favor and check out these new sites. They're pretty much the polar opposite of the old school fortress style conservation. 
and some of them are stunningly beautiful. I do look forward to checking those out, actually. Okay. Voters in Switzerland have backed a new climate bill which is designed to cut fossil fuel use and reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. The law will require a move away from dependence on imported oil and gas towards the use of renewable sources. And similarly, Spain is on track to generate more than half of its power from renewables this year. It's the first of the top five European countries by power demand to accomplish this feat. The country will reach this significant decarbonisation milestone this year. means they're beating out France, Germany, Italy and the UK, beating them to the record. You know what they're going to say about that in the country? (gasps) Goal! Uh, Nice one, Spain. (laughs) In related news, the Philippines has unveiled plans to start constructing the largest solar farm on planet Earth, a four gigawatt monster almost twice the size of the current record holder in India. The country had 13 gigawatts of solar in the pipeline as of March 2022, a tenfold increase from March in 2021. That's some good progress. And the money just keeps on coming. The U.S. Department of Energy is lending $9.2 billion to American and South Korean car companies for the construction of three battery factories in Kentucky and Tennessee. This is a move designed to displace over 1.7 billion litres of petrol just in one year. The battery arms race is truly in full swing. Japan is raising its support for batteries to up to $2.2 billion, pledging nearly $1 billion in subsidies for Toyota and other manufacturers. As the international competition for storage batteries is intensifying, the competition for capital investment is also becoming more intense. Electric vehicle sales soared more than 75% year over year in the first quarter of 2023 in the United States helping it surpass Germany to become the world's second largest EV market. In the European Union, EV sales jumped by 71% year over year this May, and Tesla has more than doubled sales in the year to date. The structural shift to electric vehicles is coming, and faster than than anyone predicted. It represents the biggest change in mass-scale transportation since cars replaced horses. What happens when hardly anyone needs gasoline anymore? Well, one answer is that gas stations and their leaky, toxic underground storage tanks disappear from our world. And, well, we think that's good news for everybody. Absolutely. Now we're getting down to business. We're focusing today on funding and community engagement for climate action. Finally, got one big one to bring us into the headspace of today's interview. It's got a lobby, it's got anarchists, there's protests, even a union. So on the last couple of episodes, we've talked quite a lot about electric vehicles. Charging stations. And batteries. Even super batteries. But you know, Tane, what's greener than a Tesla with an Uber battery being supercharged by the sun? An ape riding a bicycle. (laughs) Dutch people own more bicycles per capita than any other place in the world. And the country has more than 32,000 kilometers of dedicated cycling paths. Now, my first job was being a mountain biking, in mountain biking, being a cyclist, so I fully love their infrastructure. 
The success of cycling in the Netherlands, though, didn't magically emerge from Dutch culture. It was designed. And now international policymakers make pilgrimages to the Netherlands to learn how to create good bike infrastructure. So how did they pull that off? Admittedly, the Netherlands is as flat as a pancake and has fine weather for quite a lot of the year. So biking has always been popular. But in the 60s, they were set to design their cities in favour of cars in just the same way that Australia. Oh, and the good old United States of America. Yeah, just the way that pretty much everywhere did. But first, there was a lobbyist, an American who misunderstood the Dutch culture so badly that when he advocated to pave a canal to make a six-lane highway, well, the preservationists were incensed. And next, the anarchists, the provosts, joined in against urbanization and even joined the city council to keep cars out of their city centre. There are anarchists in the council. Oh, no. Sounds good. One thing that really lost it for the cars was the cars themselves. It was the death toll. Globally, traffic deaths, often involving children, were rising along with the number of cars on the road. In the Netherlands, in the 70s, that was about 3,000 people a year. Whereas a lot of other countries just accepted that as a new normal, the Dutch refused. So a campaign lobby with the catchphrase, Stop de Kindermort, Stop Child Murder, formed to advocate for safer streets. Stop de Kindermort, that's that's pretty potent campaign slogan. Indeed. There was also a fuel crisis. This led to better public transport use. And also an expert study came out saying how much it would cost to convert all the cobbled streets to paved roads. I'm seeing a lot of elements of climate change here, yeah? It looks a lot the same, doesn't it? This was all the backdrop to the formation of the linchpin, the Dutch Cyclists' Union. These guys became such engineering nerds that they helped to convert these behaviours into city infrastructure. So why does any of this matter? Why are we talking about this? Well, because today, Dutch people cycle an average of 2.6 kilometres per day. If this pattern was replicated worldwide, studies show that annual global carbon emissions would drop by 686 million tons. That mammoth figure exceeds the entire carbon footprint of most countries, including the UK, Canada, Saudi Arabia, and Australia. I see this as a dual testament to the fact that changing human habits is hard, and that it certainly can be achieved. Tune into Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. Conscious Capital. Welcome back to Conscious Capital. And we're really excited today because we're talking to Claire Herschel and Arielle Gamble, co-founders of Groundswell, an organization and community of passionate people who fund and power strategic climate action. So if you're into climate action, these are some of the cool kids. So Claire, Arielle, welcome. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today, guys. I'm looking forward to this. So for our listeners, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and make it interesting, maybe some stuff that people don't know about you and also what's getting you excited today? Yeah, I think like story got us both here, right? Like we were both both came from VizCom backgrounds, both saw how hard it was to engage with climate change because it's overwhelming and it's scary and there's heaps of data and have both sort of been a bit cautious about stepping in because we didn't really know how or where. But then 
we sort of met our other co-founder, Anna, who'd been doing this since she was like 14 years old and was like, here's how. (laughs) And (laughs) then it kind of, I don't know, for us, like it was like a a bit of a question about how to bring our networks in, how to communicate climate in ways that help people understand and also help people feel like they can do this because there's all these Mm. cool solutions out there. But yeah, what we were just talking about is it's hard to know where to begin. So I feel like that's, yeah, the storytelling is such an important part of this, right? It's very much so part of our DNA, Yeah, Um, both coming from a visual communications background, but, and yeah, I guess we're we're in case studies, like not knowing how to come into the space, like being climate concerned, um, but feeling like, you know, as professional designers, what could we offer the movement? Um, what kind of legitimacy do we have to be talking about climate? But the reality is that the science is done and what we actually do is communicate with urgencies um, and create narratives that people feel that they can engage in because the science can feel really, really overwhelming and dense and yeah. So that's actually ended up being our superpowers. And what connected us originally is meeting at this incredible arts advocacy project that Ariel created. And I attended, I was just at the gallery that night and um, got chatting with her about refugee advocacy, which was the premise of her show. And I was like, I love you. (laughs) Let's do some cool shit together. Absolutely. And it's worthwhile. It's certainly worthwhile shit. And Truly, I believe that story is everything. It's so important to create a narrative that people can see themselves in and encourage them to be part of the palatable, even tasty, sustainable souffle that everyone wants to be a part of. Now, Mm -hmm. due to your incredible storytelling, you were saying earlier that uh, you raised $2 in funding. Tell me a bit about that and what are you going to do with the funds? Yeah, I mean, over the since we've launched Groundswell, we've launched, we've raised two million dollars in funds for direct climate action around the country. Um, Every dollar that we raise uh, goes directly out to organisations tackling the climate crisis in all sorts of ways, from community organising to litigation to um, frontline campaigns. Uh, we're funded through our members. So people join Groundswell by chipping in $20 a week. We pull that money and make grants. Um, and the funds that we've been able to give out have, you know, shut down coal mines, brought forward the end of Victorian logging. Um, they've, yeah, reformed environmental laws. Um, you know, a recent campaign win was uh, litigation in partnership with Tiwi Islanders, who sued Santos and said, no, you can't drill in our sea country. And that case was heard um, on country. All the Santos legal team of 12 had to go through smoke and ceremony and give their evidence on Tiwi country. And the traditional owners just like trumped them. <laughs> good. <laughs> I, hope all of that was, I hope all of that was good for them in lots of different ways. Yeah, it's amazing. And that set a precedent. Now there are more cases that are being heard on country and that yeah. just wasn't done a year ago. In First Nations communities around the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all sorts of really cool stuff is bubbling up and we see, you know, right now we've got a grant round open um, and we'll be distributing uh, somewhere around $250,000 to new climate action around the country. And there's just so much exciting work. Like I think yeah, the more that you're in it, the more that you see, the more that you're just like, let's go. There's a lot of good things. 
So what are some of the wins in your sale? Like what's pushing climate change, according to you, in a positive direction? What are you excited about in um, solutions, maybe biological solutions that are making an impact? So we have a friend in our fold um, that's growing asparagopsis down in Tasmania. It's uh, called sea forest and essentially this specific type of um, seaweed can reduce methane emissions by 80% when it's used as a um, supplement in cattle feed, which is extraordinary and such an exciting opportunity. Cool. I'm a biological scientist. Uh, Tane is a post-biological scientist. I'm a recovering uh, so academic. Absolute, <laughs> absolutely love that kind of thing where it's like if you take this thing that you can make with sunlight and seawater and you feed it to this other thing, you can like turn it into like a super cow. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And it's like, yeah, it's drawing down carbon like by growing and of then course, it when it's growing and then also apparently it um it um like uh heightens productivity i don't know how you measure the productivity of the actual beef that you're eating but yeah it's it's you know more dense more nutrient all the good things yeah i think the speed at which they um grow the body mass that they manage to put on things like that i've looked at things with um dung beetles dung beetles clear away uh, you know they're, they're another one of these great like unexpected sort of carbon sequestration capturing things the dung beetles of course draw the manure down that fertilizes the grass that means that the cows have got more better grass that doesn't have cow shit on top of it to graze on so dung beetles make better beef oh my gosh that's cool (laughs) it reminds me of the reason why uh the beach sand is wet because the seaweed (laughs) (laughs) you're on conscious capital with me tane hunter and me shasta henry on disrupt radio new to dab plus and streaming live at disrupt.radio More about how to save the world from our guests in just a moment. Groundswell, you got me thinking, uh, you know, we were talking about the the necessity of making climate action accessible because people are people uh, and and we need to, you know, like find a way in and and actions that fit into lives that are already complex and, uh, and, and to ways of like turning this really big, problem into into manageable problems i'm wondering i'm i'm assuming you know through years and with different technologies the bits of advice that you're giving to people progresses so i was just sort of wondering if you're talking to our listeners today what pieces of advice have you been giving out recently what what do people do as individuals at the moment I think that's really interesting framing of it um, because I think where we're at in climate change and climate action now, we really need large-scale systems change Mm -hmm. to turn things around, right? And for a long time, actually since like the early thousands when BP BP first ran their carbon footprint campaign, Mm -hmm. um, big mega companies have been putting the onus of climate action on individuals. So if you're not composting, shame on you. If you're not like bike riding and going fully vegan, turning your dog vegan, shame on you. You know, you're a problem. (laughs) And like you disgusting human individual. And like fair, you know, in the global north, we have a really outsized carbon footprint and we have a, we use, use more resources than anybody in the global south times a gazillion. But we 
like basically there's 100 companies in the world that are responsible for 71% of all carbon emissions. And in tackling the climate crisis, we need to tackle, like we need to tackle the system and that requires political engagement. So what we say to people when they're wanting to make an impact on climate is get collective, collective action through advocacy, campaigning, litigation, organising is what we need to create the political, corporate and social will to transform and We've got all these amazing solutions, right? Like we've got amazing solutions in agriculture. We've got amazing solutions in energy. We've got amazing solutions in transport. They're ready to go. But around the world, governments have been held back. A lot of that has been held back by corporate interests. Mm -hmm. So our role as people is basically to fast track that government action and push them to where we need to go because global pledges combined we're set to warm somewhere around three degrees by the end of the century we've warmed 1.2 degrees globally and in australia here we've warmed 1.45 degrees like we're on the forefront of that trajectory yeah yeah we need we need that catchy we need that catchy slogan we need our own stop dick wood <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, so, um, you know, we started Groundswell because we wanted to make that more tangible and manageable. So what we say is, like, join a climate group, fund climate action. There's amazing work happening right across the movement here and globally. You don't need to start from scratch. Mm. Just get involved and get stuck in and get involved in the work already underway. There's heaps that you can do. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense. I really love yeah. your idea about cultural currency and creating the gravity to foster collaboration. How, what do you think are some of the best ways to obtain cultural currency? Oh, so we've been engaging. I, I mean, having said that, we or, we already come from an arts and culture background. Um, those are a lot of, you know, we've got lots of storytellers in our fold. So it's, it's and it and throughout social movements like through history you know coming together in song expressing through theater or dance to sort of wrestle with these big things that are happening um and no bigger time than um i guess this moment in humanity it really illuminates the why we're doing with the heart piece mm, yeah i mean like it that's how you connect to people to move them yeah. to see themselves in the solution to understand the problems I mean it's it's interesting like how do you get somebody to understand climate change we we're talking about this with a bunch of storytellers the other day and they were saying you know if you tell somebody um like if you talk about climate science say through a normal tv show without humour, it's really hard to take on because people feel judged. Whereas if you can bring humour in, like just the way that you tell a story can transform what might have been a scary narrative into one that feels manageable and feels accessible and you can kind of see a pathway through. So I think it's like um, it's who tells stories, it's how they tell stories. Um, How can we help people to visualise the future as well? Like we often say, like we'll be satisfied when like, one of the main characters on Home and Away is a roof, you know, a solar installer or, you know, it's kind of like how do we bring these narratives in in such a way that it's entirely (laughs) normalised as like the accepted future? 
Yeah. <laughs> We've got a Sparky and a Chippy and a solar panel roof installer. It's correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think like the, I get, you know, we've been up against a pretty major disinformation large campaign run by the fossil fuel industry since the 80s. Like since the 80s, they started investing in, they actually hired the PR team of the tobacco industry to give them social license to keep on polluting. And so they wrote, I mean, they hired their own scientists to put out bogus information. They set up their own think tanks to publish that. The think tanks then had like media lobbying arms and, you know, they've put out all this nonsense over time. And so like there's a big legacy of stories that we need to unpack. And Mm. when I look at this country and the stories that the mining lobby continue to tell, They've really hijacked the Australian identity. They put everybody in high views. They talk about everyday people. But the fact is everyday people are losing out every day. We pay money in taxes to fix up climate disasters fueled by these major companies where, you know, kids are going through a mental health epidemic because they're worried as hell about the future. Mm. Um, Mm. So Mm -hmm. we need to start telling stories that kind of, reclaim our identity mm-hmm. and what is that identity like how do we move away from being a petro state that's full of racists <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah you know, to a new vision oh the human condition mm. <laughs> it ain't broke don't fix it <laughs> that, that and, me, and me for me and, and mine for mine fascinated by people as a species and, and how yeah. and how we are made and evolved to function you know in a in a landscape that's so different than the one that we're currently in um mm. sort of leads yeah. leads to some of these really just enormous hurdles uh, my my interest is in is in understanding our neuroscience to give myself a little bit of empathy for like why some of these like big changes or important changes, you know, and we know how important this is, and it's still really just difficult to get on board. Mm. There's great research done about all of that. I don't know if you've read that book, The Righteous Mind. Have you? Oh no, I yeah, haven't. It's great. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It sort of talks about basically why progressives have been getting in the way of themselves. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great just, book. Yeah, because we just we refuse to kind of lean into the values of conservatives. So we we can empathize with most things except for the people who disagree with us, <laughs> and we refuse to communicate through those shared values. So for like progressives, we mostly talk in terms of like care and harm and fairness and unfairness, but the moral foundations of conservative folk are like protection, nationalism, loyalty, all these other different frames that are really important to them. And we've really got to challenge ourselves as storytellers to think about how we can lean into their language and their frames and go into like a deep listening, which doesn't start with, hey, I'm going to change your mind. It starts with, hey, I want to understand you. And Mm -hmm. I think that's like something that we will look at and think about quite a bit. Yeah. The righteous mind, I love they explore what they call moral sliders effectively how conservative or how liberal or American liberal, how left you are. And we're really, it's the, you can even trace it back to a genetic level. Some people are just more predisposed to be conservative. Um, and But understanding that and understanding the framework and their logical process is really important to, one, have a conversation with them, but also to acknowledge what they believe and then talk in their language. And that's why story is so powerful. And back to your point about humor, a future crunch, we design our narratives around the smart, heart, and fart way of storytelling. 
So smart, make sure your facts are sacred. You know what you're talking about, but don't bore people with too many statistics. Heart is the essence, right? It's the storytelling, bringing people in, allowing them to visualize themselves in a story and how they can take part of it. And then fart. Well, everyone farts. You got to have a laugh. Humor is key. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, it's so important. We recently did like an Insta carousel about climate change in 2023 using thirst traps of Clint Eastwood. (laughs) 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 Who's our market? Obviously. How's how's it going? How's it going with the audience? (laughs) Good. We just try and have fun with it. Like you can't talk to people in doom and gloom every day of the year you know there are moments where we have to be really serious and show up in all of that but I don't know I think it's keeping the conversation going and finding ways to kind of keep you know acknowledge that you're sharing a truth in understanding of the climate reality that we're in but finding moments of light too yeah um it's so important to have that light to sustain because like it's an emergency but it's also a, a long time. This is a generational struggle, right? Um, and we have to keep living through this emergency. Yeah, and like doing the work. I just have to laugh. I want like cat grumpy cats yeah. in my daily cards <laughs> so that I don't freak out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. And you, you really have to inspire people to not be like, "Oh, we're screwed." There's nothing we can do, but it's more like thinking about it like a car crash. You want to mitigate it. You don't want to hit the wall at a thousand kilometers an hour and not be able to walk away. You want to have, you know, a 30 kilometer hour crash where you probably need some medical attention, but you're going to survive. Yeah. And I, that, and that is the reality. We are going to crash, but it's just how badly. Mm. And, but that gives us a lot of power actually in this moment. It does. Yeah. Like we were talking about this earlier. I don't, there hasn't we haven't had this much concentrated power at a moment in time and the next generation won't get this chance to make the choices that can mm-hmm. create you know can spell the difference between safety and danger in such big ways between a future with no koalas or a future with koalas a future with food security or not um you know and before like there's never been such a pressing finite urgency so it's a big kind of it's a big time that we're in, but it's a small time that we're in. Um, and all of our choices just have that much more outsized impact, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so let's adorn seaweed seatbelts and get our airbags full of beautiful oxygen producing <laughs> algae. And let- put the cow in the back. We're ready to roll. <laughs> I think they'd be utterly over the moon about it. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> Talking about regulation, maybe not the funnest uh, topic about the climate change, but how do you approach regulation and how do you either navigate or sideswipe them, go around them, or how do you directly deal with them? What's your feeling on regulators? Do you trust them? <laughs> no, they need massive accountability. <laughs> we need to force them to do a whole lot more, and then we need to keep high visibility on them while they do it. Um, you know, uh, there's lots of factors um, at play when we talk about like representative democracy and it's not just citizens that are being represented, it's corporations and business influencers who can afford to have lobbyists in parliament every day of the week. You know, the environment movement can't afford that. No. Um, instead, like it's grassroots citizens and organisations who need to 
keep the pressure on. Um, and that work needs funding too, and that's what we try and do. Um, so, yeah, like I, I think we need to understand being a citizen as being a very participatory thing. Like democracy is only going to be as good as how much we show up in it and for it. Um, mm-hmm. so we really, you know, yeah, we've yeah. all got a lot of agency in that. The politicians will only ever aim as high as their citizens demand. Absolutely. Yeah, and I believe we are truly citizens of the world and our effects have a global impact. And so mm-hmm. that with great responsibility, well, great power comes great responsibilities. So regulate yourself, people. <laughs> love it <laughs> all right well we're running out of time and concluding we need to conclude this interview but give us some final thoughts because it has been absolutely lovely to chat with you and i could chat with you all day but give us some final tidbits of hope and ways that people can reach out and be part of this fair and sustainable change sure i mean what gives us hope i think is all the great people that we get to do this work alongside you know there's so many amazing people and organizations leaning in and like truly inspiring people thinking about really innovative ways to take us all forward um when it comes to climate so i think for us it's just it's the people that's the hope piece right and then you know what i've found really beautiful coming to the climate movement was, you know, I came as a graphic designer <laughs> and I was like, what the heck can I bring? Oh my God. And I don't know anything and I've got so much to learn, but um, I was welcomed incredibly by Claire and by our other co-founder, Anna, and so many other people who've just been so generous with time and knowledge. And we all try and pass that on and carry that forward. And we've been able to welcome so many people into this and to see people like athletes coming in, lawyers coming in, um, teachers coming in, all sorts of different, different, you know, farmers, doctors, whatever. Um, It's a really cool thing. And there's, we really need all the people. (laughs) That's right. I mean, climate is going, climate, um, I guess climate change is going to affect each and every every one of us, um, not equally, but it will affect every single one of us. And so we need mm. every single one of us to participate in climate action mm. to make that change. And, you know, not everybody can leave their day jobs and commit their lives to it the way that Ariella and I have, but that's also precisely why we set up Groundswell to make it you know, to be the welcome mat for climate, to profile all the ways that you can get amongst it, climate action. And, you know, from $20 a week, you can fund these incredible people that are doing all the hard work and making the very necessary tangible change. You're, you're kind of uh, proving the <laughs> truth. We we had a sort of a, an adage uh, earlier in the show that effectively that the world is run by the people who turn up uh, and so that that you can put down that sense of imposter syndrome. It was like what do you have to bring to the space? Mm-hmm. Yourself by the sounds of things. Like yeah, yourself is enough. History is made by people who show up with their heads and their hearts and their hands. And that's what you're doing. That's what we're all doing. That's what gives us hope and, and you know, is that light to get us through it. And a couple of farts along the way. Yeah. <laughs> Always. Yeah. yeah. But, but less cow farts. 
because yes. we, you know, yes. because of the seaweeds. Yeah. Call me saying issue, my friend. Yeah. Yes. Seaweed farts, everyone. Well, thank you, Claire and Ariel. <laughs> seaweed farts only. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for joining there's us. The new, there's the new T-shirt. It's not quite. It's not quite hot to kinder mood, but uh, seaweed farts only zone. <laughs> Well, thank you for so creating good. Groundswell and making a place for artists, even science nerds. Everyone can be a part of this. And thank you for your part in making a better world for all. If you're interested in getting in contact with them, check out the Groundswell website. They have a bunch of cool initiatives for 20 bucks a week, I believe, that you can get involved. You guys are some of the cool kids around helping with climate action. So please keep up your amazing work. And thank you, Claire and Ariel, so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much us. for having us. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Shasta, for joining me today. Always such a pleasure. Any final words? Yeah, it's all got me thinking. Uh, people might have heard it said that the world will not be saved by the few perfect bicycle riding vegans. Uh, but as we've seen, it might be saved by 17 million Dutch on bikes. And in bright orange. <laughs> Yeah. No, but seriously, human habits are difficult to change. So I encourage people to find the ones that are self-motivating for them. Be empathetic when you falter so that you can get back on the bike. Conscious capital. Profit equals people and planet. So we used over 40 references in this episode. And if you're interested and want to keep up to date and follow our research and reporting, Sign up to Future Crunch's weekly newsletter. It's full of cutting-edge developments in science and technology, plenty of stories of progress around sustainability, conservation, and clean energy, and the best business thought leadership we can find from all around the world. And hey, we just launched our TED Talk. We opened TED this year in Vancouver. So let's end this with a quote. I always love quotes to round things off from intelligent people. So this one is from Nelson Mandela. I am fundamentally an optimist. Whether that comes from nature or nurture, I cannot say. Part of being optimistic is keeping one's head pointed towards the sun, one's feet moving forward. Thanks, Nelson. Conscious Capital, the business of being better. This is Disrupt Radio. Disrupt Radio. Tune in to opportunity. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Sunil Badami. I've been a freelancer for almost my entire career. And while I've had full-time contract work from time to time, I've also found myself utterly bored by the predictability of routine or the regularity of one role or workplace. The radio show that explores the exhilarating, the innovative and the unpredictable in the rapidly evolving world of work. The future of work, according to tech entrepreneur and academic Nicholas Collin, will mean more of us, if not most of us, won't have secure jobs for life but we'll have different periods of full-time employment, contracting, starting our own businesses, freelancing. Sunil Badami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift, live on DAB+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio. Tune in to Opportunity.